Well, it is a joy to be back with you guys this morning and to have the opportunity to discuss the last three pillars of the doctrines of grace. Now, if you were here with us last Sunday or, um, or have thought or forgot throughout the passage of time this week, we began a two-part series last Sunday covering the doctrines of grace. We've titled this brief two-part series, Salvation is of the Lord, denoting the fact that from beginning to end, salvation is accomplished by God's sovereign grace for the magnification of his own glory. Now, the doctrines of grace are commonly observed and expressed under the umbrella of the five points of Calvinism, summed up with that acronym TULIP. Now, you remember that last week we discovered that the doctrines of grace did not just originate in the 16th century with John Calvin, but rather sprang forth from the response of the Dutch Reformed Church to the teachings of the followers of Jacob Arminius in a publication that they titled The Remonstrance in 1610. The Remonstrance detailed the five points of departure of the Arminians from the Dutch Reformed Church and the teachings of John Calvin. And in the years 1618 and 1619, several Reformed ministers and theologians gathered together to provide a response to these five points of departure. What has become known as the Synod of Dort with the publication of the Canons of Dort responding to the five points of the Arminians. We also discussed the primary objectives of this study. You see, this study is not just so that we would grow in knowledge, that we would grow in our understanding of the scriptures for the sole sake of that, but that as a result of studying the doctrines of grace, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of God our Savior. That the truths that we study would intersect into our very lives so that, secondly, that as a result, that we would be stimulated that we would be compelled to exalt the sovereign glory of God in saving sinners. And lastly, the third objective that I presented as the, the point or the, the outcome of this study is as a result of studying the doctrines of grace, that we would be humbled by salvation that is accomplished solely by God. We then move to discuss the overarching theme of our study the overarching theme of our study that we came back to again and again is that the doctrines of grace are biblically taught in historically affirmed truths that serve the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of our great God and humbling sinners whose only boast is in the Lord. We then moved and had the privilege to study the first two pillars of the doctrines of grace, total depravity and unconditional election. Now, I'm not gonna recap what we learned last week. If you weren't here or you forgot, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon over those first two pillars. But today we have the privilege of considering the final three pillars of the doctrines of grace, namely limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, again, let me just mention that this is by no means a full-orbed comprehensive study of the matter. This is a mere 30,000 foot flyover, remarking and hitting on the high points of these glorious doctrines. Now, I would encourage you to not let this be the only time that you consider these doctrines, these two hours that we have together, but that as we leave from here, that you would engage in further study of yourself 
And at the close of our time, I'll present you with a couple of recommended resources that would be good starts to considering these in deeper degree. So with that in mind, let us begin our survey and study today of the final three pillars of the doctrines of grace. And the first pillar of the doctrines of grace that I want us to look at is that of limited atonement. Now, just as we surveyed the doctrine of total depravity and the doctrine of unconditional election under four headings, in the same manner, I wanna study the final three pillars under those same four headings, beginning with our first heading, a summary definition of limited atonement. You see, the doctrine of limited atonement, or sometimes coined particular redemption, answers the question, who did the eternal son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, offer his life as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice, bearing the full fury of the righteous wrath of almighty God on Calvary's cross? In other words, did Jesus die for all mankind for their sins, or did he die only and exclusively for the sins of the elect? The canons of Dort affirm the latter. So as we consider this summary definition of limited atonement, I wanna to go to the canons of Dort. Specifically, this final portion, it says, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. You see, the precious death of God the Son effectually redeems the elect and the elect only who were chosen in eternity past and were given as a people for his own possession to the son of God in the covenant of redemption. John Murray in his excellent treatment of the issue and redemption accomplished and applied writes that the doctrine of limited atonement is the doctrine which limits the atonement to those who are the heirs of eternal life, namely the elect. So now that we have a brief understanding, a brief working definition of limited atonement, let's turn now to the second heading that I want us to consider, the biblical evidence of limited atonement. And just as I emphasized last week, this has to be the most important factor in our consideration of the verity and the fidelity of the doctrines of grace and any theological proposition for that matter. What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible explicitly affirm limited atonement? Well, let's begin by considering the biblical evidence by analyzing the Old Testament evidence, first and foremost, looking at the priesthood and sacrificial system. You see, atonement is always denoted in the Old Testament sacrificial system as being efficacious. That is, it was effectual for the offer of the sacrifice. The priest offered atonement of the sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins resulted. You can see this in Leviticus 4, 20, 26, 31, 35. The priest makes atonement for sin and the forgiveness of sins results. You see in this concept of the atonement, there's no room for potential atonement or potential forgiveness being offered, but rather the sacrificial system emphasizes an actual and a particular atonement and forgiveness for sins. You see the same affirmation in Leviticus chapter five with the, the guilt offering. In Leviticus 5.10, it says, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed and it will be forgiven him. And so it goes in verses 13, 16, and 18. 
The sacrifice is offered in place or in the stead of, on behalf of the guilty party. The priest offers the sacrifice and atonement is made and thereby resulting the forgiveness of sins. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I want to consider this clear affirmation of a limited atonement emphasized and highlighted in the fourth servant song of Isaiah. Here we see that the suffering servant, the Messiah, offered his life on behalf of his people. You see, this hymn is replete and chock full of evidence of substitutionary and particular atonement. Look at verse four of Isaiah Isaiah 53. Our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Look at verse five. He, that is the Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Let your eyes peruse down to verse eight. Verse eight, we read that as for the sake of the Messiah, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The Messiah, the suffering servant, the servant of Jehovah was to borrow the language of this hymn, cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, he died. And notice what verse eight says, uh, for why or the substituted party in verse eight. It was for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke of divine justice was due. Let your eyes glance down to verse 10 and notice that it wasn't just the Jews, it wasn't just the Romans that put the Messiah to death, but verse 10 says that it was Yahweh who was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And notice that verb crush in verse 10, it's the same verb up in verse five that he was crushed for our iniquities. So what we can glean from this comprehensive understanding is that Yahweh, the true and living God, crushed the Messiah for the transgressions of his people. To deny the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption is to say that Christ died for the sins of all mankind without exception. If you agree to that, or if you adhere to that doctrine, that is to say from the evidence of the suffering servant that he was the one who was crushed by Yahweh for all of mankind's iniquities and transgressions, making propitiation on their behalf and securing expiation by his substitutionary atonement, even those who would reject and spurn the offer of the gospel. Look down at verse 11. Verse 11, the latter half, says that the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Now notice the parallelism at the end of verse 11. The same group of people that have their sins borne by the suffering servant are the same group that are justified. So unless we're willing to become universalist, unless we're willing to say that all mankind without exception is justified, that is declared righteous before the bar of God's justice, we have to affirm limited atonement because we see from verse 11 that the same group that is justified are the ones that have their sins borne by the suffering servant. 
Now, I'll bring this back up later as we consider objections to limited atonement because one of the primary objections that you will hear is that the atonement offered by the Lord Jesus Christ was universal in its scope. It applied to all mankind, if you will. But the specific application, the specific benefits of that atonement are only applied to particular individuals, to those who are saved, to those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse tells us there could be no such thing. E.J. Young writes, commenting on the servant hymn, he says, the sins were committed by the people were born by the servant. His punishment was vicarious. As our substitute, he bore the penalty that was rightfully ours. I have to say, as I was studying this last week on Tuesday, I was studying this verse and I had to leave my study, run to my wife and just share this glorious truth with her because it is so clear from the suffering servant that the atonement that was offered by him is for his own people. What we'll see in a little bit is constituted as his bride, his body, his people. So it's evident from just this brief sampling of the Old Testament that limited atonement is affirmed, but what about the pages of the New Testament? The New Testament with greater clarity and precision affirms the reality of limited atonement. Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh saves, why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Four verses later in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, as the good shepherd, dies on behalf of, as the substitute of the sheep, not the goats. You see, you have to affirm limited atonement unless you're willing to say that Jesus died in the same manner for Pharaoh as he did for Moses. You have to affirm the doctrine of particular redemption unless you want to say that Jesus died in the same way for Judas as he did for his beloved disciples, Peter and John. Acts 20, 28 says that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, Christ did not indiscriminately love the entirety of the world, but has a particular and special love for his people those whom he gave his life up for, his body, his bride, the church. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, we could really consider this passage for every single one of the doctrines of grace. But Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 28, we have what's been known as the, the golden chain of redemption. Now, I want you to see this specifically in verses 32 through 34, the words of the Apostle Paul. So in verse 33 of Romans chapter eight, that same group that is identified there as God's elect are the same group who in verse 32, God did not spare his only son for. And the same group in view in verse 34, whom the son intercedes for. You see, if we affirm the doctrine of unlimited atonement, where Christ dies for all mankind, then we have to affirm 
that the son is right now interceding at the right hand of God for all those who will eventually perish. We must understand that Jesus' priestly and mediatorial work of sacrifice and intercession are bound together and inextricably linked. In other words, those whom Jesus intercedes for at the right hand of the Father, what Dr. Clawson taught us last week, are the same group who he offered his life for, as verse 32 says, as he was given up for. To put it another way, Christ intercedes for everyone for whom he has died. And he died for everyone whom he intercedes. I love what Jonathan Gibson says in From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, a wonderful book. He says this, he says, Christ died as a king for his people, as a husband for his bride, as head for his body, as shepherd for his sheep, as master for his friends, as firstborn for his brothers and sisters, as the second and last Adam for a new humanity. I love that quote. Now the biblical evidence supports and presents that the doctrine of limited atonement is affirmed in the pages of Holy Writ, that Jesus died for the elect and the elect alone, but not everybody affirms this reality. So that brings us to our third heading that we have to consider, and that are some of the common objections of limited atonement some common argumentations against limited atonement. The first objection that we need to consider is that some scriptural texts say that Christ died for the world and for all men. Some scriptural texts affirm that Christ died for the whole world and all men. We have to acknowledge the reality of the statement. It's in black and white in the pages of scripture. There are texts in the scripture which clearly state that Christ died for all or the world. However, in these passages with careful exegesis, we can conclude that the references refer to all mankind without distinction rather than without exception. Let me present two examples just briefly. 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 2, 2, we read, he himself, that is Christ, the divine advocate who is in view, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What are we to do with this verse? You see, it seems like this verse is affirming that the Lord Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the satisfaction of divine wrath, not only for believer's sins, but also for the whole world. We must ask ourselves the question, in what way is John using the term world? You see, the term world, cosmos in the Greek, has a wide variety of meanings within its semantic range. In 1 John 2, it's best to view this uses, especially with the primary purpose of John, affirmed in 1 John 5, 13, providing assurance to believers to refer to this specific reference of world, refers to all believers throughout the world scattered abroad, not just there in Asia Minor to those whom John is writing, and to all the elect throughout the progression of time. I say that based upon the purpose of 1 John. If Christ is the propitiation and the divine advocate for the elect, for believers, and also for the reprobate, those who would reject Christ, what assurance, what consolation does that provide to believers? 
Zero. No assurance. I mean, consider 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us because they were never of us. Is John saying that in the same way that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the Johannine community, those to whom he's writing is the same way as those who were the false teachers who left? It can't be so. Consider 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. It says there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Mark 10, 45, he gave himself a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 6, he gave himself a ransom for all. What are we to do with this? Who is the all in reference in this passage? You see, the context of 1 Timothy 2 shows us that the all in verse six and the all men who God desires to be saved in verse four refers to all men without distinction. Think about 1 Timothy 2. Paul is encouraging Timothy to offer prayers on behalf of all men, including kings and those in authority. And so what Paul is writing for is that the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a ransom for all men without distinction. That is for those of nobility, for kings, for those in authority, and also for those of no noble lineage or birth. Now, there are other scriptural texts that we don't have the time to consider that on the surface seem to be teaching that Jesus died for all mankind's sin. Yet upon careful exegesis, it is clear that the universal scope of the atonement is not in view. We must move to a second objection of limited atonement, and it's this. The atonement is universal, but the application is particular. You see, this objection affirms that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind without exception, but only the benefits are applied to those who put their faith in Jesus. In other words, the atonement offered by the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago makes salvation possible but actually only saves a particular number of individuals. However, this doctrine of unlimited atonement denies and contradicts the doctrine of inseparable operations. What do I mean? The doctrine of inseparable operation argues that the three persons of the divine trinity, the Godhead, act in concert with one another, are unified and harmonious in their works. For example, the work of redemption. We see the father predestines and elects a particular people, a people whom he gives to the son as a love offering. We see the son in the incarnation come and accomplish redemption by offering his life as a substitutionary atonement, by rising vicariously in the stead of those who would believe. And we see the spirit applying the work and the benefit of that to those whom the father has decreed to eternal life and to the son redeemed. You see, there's not three different redemptions. There's one singular redemption in which all three persons of the Trinity act in concert, act harmoniously together to accomplish the one work of redemption. So let me ask you, in the case where the son offers atonement, he lays down his life for the sins of all mankind, but the spirit only applies that to certain individuals Who's the rogue agent in the Trinity in that conception? The son, right? The son offers his life to pay for the penalty of the sins of all mankind, but the spirit only applies the benefits of this redemption to those who were foreseen to believe 
if that's the case, the son steps out of the unified will of the triune God. He acts as a rogue agent in the Trinity. This cannot be. It presents unnecessary, unwarranted divide and discord within the Trinity to affirm this reality. Well, we must move on to consider the fourth heading, which is the historical affirmations of limited atonement. The historical affirmations of limited atonement. Again, as we said last week, the historical affirmations are mere subservient, are mere ministerial authority witnesses under the authoritative majesty of the scriptures. But Christian, knowing that other men, men upon whom you stand upon their shoulders, believe this same truth, does that, does that not bolster your confidence? your faith and the truthfulness and the veracity and the fidelity of the doctrine, this isn't something new. It's not something that has come onto the scene in the last 200 years or since the 16th century in John Calvin, but has been affirmed throughout the lineage of the church. Let's consider what John Murray writes concerning the doctrine of limited atonement. John Murray writes, the glory of the cross of Christ is bound up with the effectiveness of its accomplishment. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. He gave himself a ransom that he might deliver us all from iniquity. The atonement is efficacious substitution. What about J.I. Packer? J.I. Packer, the author of Knowing God, affirms the truth of limited atonement when he writes this. He says, the Bible sees the cross as revealing God's power to save, not his impotence. Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for his own chosen people. While this historical affirmation is a mere addendum to our more extensive study of the doctrine of limited atonement, it shows us that the doctrine of limited atonement, particular redemption, is a biblically taught historically affirmed truth that serves the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of our great God and humbling sinners whose only boast is in the Lord. So we've considered the first three pillars of the doctrines of grace. Let us now turn and consider the fourth pillar, the I and tulip, which is irresistible grace. Just as before, let's consider just a summary definition of irresistible grace. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith affirms irresistible grace, and it identifies it with the effectual call. We'll get there in a second. You see, in God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those who he has predestined to life. You see, many reject the doctrine of irresistible grace, fashioning a straw man that God drags sinners kicking and screaming against their volition into the kingdom of God but that's the farthest from the case. Spurgeon says, God does not save an unwilling man, but he makes him willing in the day of his power. You see, as the elect sinner's eyes are opened to the sinfulness of his own sin, to the gloriousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, as his dead and cold and lifeless heart is transplanted with the heart of vitality, and has his enslaved will, which is bound in his sinful state, is released from the shackles. The elect sinner 
is sovereignly and effectually drawn unto God in salvation. God makes the sinner willing by his work. So now that we've been introduced to irresistible grace, let's now consider the biblical evidence. Again, let's analyze it under the Old Testament evidence. Now, as we examine it under the Old Testament evidence, I wanna examine it under two categories, two distinct categories that affirm the necessity of the doctrine of irresistible grace. And the first one that I would give you is the evidence from man's inability. Evidence from man's inability. Job 14.4 says, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You see, just as the Ethiopian cannot change the amount of melanin within his skin, and just as the leopard does not have the ability to shed the spots on his coat, so too the sinner does not have the capacity, does not have the ability to change his sinful ways apart from God's divine intervention and his grace. You can consider the imagery of Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. Apart from God's breathing life into the bones, the bones remain dead and lifeless. Let's consider a second category, evidence from God's intervention. There's evidence from man's inability and evidence from God's intervention. Genesis 1-3 says, one of the first verses of the Bible, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 utilizes this as an analogous picture to the powerful creative work of God in regeneration. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that those who are perishing have their minds blinded by the God of this world so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So let me ask you, what is the difference between those who have their eyes blinded by the God of this world in verse four and those in verse six who can savor and experience the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ? What's the difference? The difference lies in the fact of God's divine intervention in opening unbelieving minds in softening obstinate hearts through the work of regeneration. In verse six, in the same way that God's powerful word spoke light into existence in Genesis chapter one, verse three, so too the efficacious and effectual word and work of the triune God brings spiritual life to the dead and blinded sinner. It's as if God says, let there be light into the soul of the sinner. Let's turn to the pages of the New Testament to consider the evidence from the New Testament of irresistible grace. Again, the same two categories, evidence from man's inability. Evidence from man's inability. John 3 and Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus says that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse five, he says, you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2 Paul affirms the reality that believers before being in Christ were dead in sins and trespasses. 
needing the divine work of God in verses four and five, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit for they are foolishness to him for he cannot understand them. Mankind's inability to raise themselves from spiritual death and their inability to see the kingdom of God demands the doctrine of irresistible grace where God effectually calls the sinner unto himself. And let's look at that from the evidence of God's intervention. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter six. John chapter six. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in verse 37, Jesus affirms this reality. He says, all that the father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Let your eyes glance down to verse 44. In verse 44, Jesus says it in a very similar way, but adds a a certain important essential truth. No one, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we're not getting into the linguistics and the lexical definition of draws. I would encourage you, R.C. Sproul has a funny interaction with one of his professors in college who his professor who taught at a Presbyterian seminary, one that was traditionally reformed, said that no, irresistible grace is not true. God does not drag the sinner kicking and screaming. And they argue back about the linguistics of draws and how it's used in secular Greek, et cetera. And RC in his quizzical and in his way says, let me ask you professor, because the example from the old test or the, uh, the classical Greek was of drawing water out of a well he says, let me, t- let me ask you, do you effectually draw water out of a well? And R.C. Sproul says, no, but I know you don't whisper, here, water, 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 water. You see, God doesn't whisper. He doesn't woo the sinner into the kingdom. He imparts divine, powerful life. He draws him to himself. Consider the example of John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. We see in verse 43 of John chapter 11 that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks out to the deceased corpse of Lazarus who has been dead for four days now. And he sovereignly sums him out of the grave. You see in a very similar manner, the effectual call, the doctrine of irresistible grace is illustrated by this miraculous account in our Lord's incarnational ministry. You see, as the Lord issues forth this authoritative Sovereign word, Lazarus was raised to new life and he willingly stepped out of the dark chambers of the inner tomb unto the company that were gathered there in Bethany. Consider from the epistles, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice this calling is into fellowship with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So unless we are willing to ascribe intimate fellowship, intimate communion to all mankind, even the unbeliever, in the same way that the believer experiences this special privilege of being united to Christ, of having intimate fellowship with him, then we have to affirm that this is the effectual call where God calls the sinner unto himself 
by his own sovereign grace. Again, just as with the doctrine of limited atonement, there are those who object to the doctrine of irresistible grace. So we have to be prepared. We have to consider some common objections to irresistible grace. The first one that I would provide for you is that the doctrine of irresistible grace is a deterrent to world missions and evangelism. Some will say that. You see, this objection asserts that since only the elect receive this irresistible grace, only the elect receive this effectual call, then the general universal gospel call that goes out to all of mankind is suppressed and the motivation and zeal for evangelism would be suppressed in its stead. Why preach the gospel at all? If God's gonna save the elect through his means, and we get into hyper-Calvinism. But see, consider the Paul's treatment of the proclamation of the gospel in Romans chapter 10. Paul says, how will they call on the one they have not believed? And how will they believe if they do not hear? For faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Spurgeon said this, he said, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting up shirts. But since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. And when whosoever believes, I know that he is one of the elect. Herman Bavink in his dogmatic says, the gospel is proclaimed to human beings. Human beings in need of redemption, not to the elect, not to the reprobate, but to human beings in need of God's divine intervention and salvation. A second objection that we must consider is that the doctrine of irresistible grace makes the gospel offer disingenuous. This objection asserts that because irresistible grace and the effectual call secures the salvation of the elect and the elect only, then the general gospel call that goes out to all unbelieving mankind who reject and spurn the offer of the gospel, it's not really authentic. It's not really genuine. However, this begs the question, on what grounds do we consider the gospel offer to be genuine? And Roger Nicole aptly summarizes, he says, the essential prerequisite for a sincere offer is this, that the terms of the offer be observed, that which is offered is actually granted. So Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If the terms of that offer are observed, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking rest for your soul in him, the terms of that offer will be granted. That's a genuine call but we see in John chapter six that no one can come to him unless the father draws him. You see, the, the genuineness of the call is not necessarily based in the fact of, of God making this offer disingenuous. You see, the deficiency and the inadequacy of the gospel call lies in mankind's inability and his total depravity to respond. Let's look at the historical affirmations of irresistible grace. Augustine affirms this truth when he says this. He says, when therefore the gospel is preached, some believe, some believe not. But they who believe at the voice of the preacher from without hear of the father from within and learn. While they who do not believe hear outwardly, but inwardly they do not hear or learn, end quote. Herman Witsius, who was a 17th century Puritan theologian, says this. 
He says the first immediate fruit of eternal election and the principal act of God by which appointed salvation is applied is effectual calling, is irresistible grace. And this calling is the act by which those who are chosen by God and redeemed by Christ, both externally and internally, are sweetly invited and effectually brought from a state of sin to a state of communion with God, end quote. You see, the fact of the matter is, is that the Bible explicitly affirms and the witness of the church throughout the history affirms the doctrine of irresistible grace and that it serves the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of our great God and humbling sinners. We didn't come to Christ upon our own volition. If it was up to us, none of us would be saved. But God, God began the work in the heart of the sinner to draw him unto himself. So we've considered the first four pillars of the doctrines of grace. We've studied total depravity. We've studied unconditional election. We've studied limited atonement, irresistible grace. And that brings us to the fifth and final pillar of the doctrines of grace, which is the perseverance of the saints. Again, let us begin by looking at a summary definition of the perseverance of the saints. Again, the, 19, or the 1689 London Baptist Confession summarizes it as this. It says, those that God has accepted in the beloved, who he has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. Now notice the objects of this preserving work of God. It's that those who are accepted in the beloved, those who are effectually called the elect. You see, this doctrine doesn't have the visible church in summa in terms of its focus, but rather has the universal church as its focus. You see, this doctrine does not concern those who might profess faith in Christ, who might be members of local churches scattered across the globe, who might give off every appearance of being a Christian and yet not be truly regenerate, united to Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. The sad reality is, is that there are some amongst you today tears amongst the wheat who might be masquerading before everybody. You might be playing Christian. You might have fooled your friends. You might have fooled the leaders. But friend, let me warn you. When the curtain closes, the final scene is done and the mask must be removed. You will appear before the almighty, omniscient God. You can fool those around you. You can't fool God who sees into the hearts of all men. Friends, If that's you, 
I must plead for you to take the mask off. Look to the atonement. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is offered for your sins. Stop playing games with the gospel. Your soul depends upon it. Turn to him today. Let's consider the biblical evidence of the perseverance of the saints. First, the Old Testament evidence. Psalm 37, 28 says this. It says, Yahweh does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. Psalm 103, 17, the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Isaiah 54, 10, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my steadfast love will not be removed from you. The firm and the topographical features of the land may be shaken, may be removed, but the steadfast love of the Lord will not be removed from his people. Jeremiah 32, 40, this is the Lord. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. This is one of the blessings of the new covenant. The verb turn away there means to abandon or to turn aside. One of the integral promises of the new covenant is that God will not abandon. He will not turn aside from or forsake the believer. Hebrews 13, 5. And in the same way, because of God's divine intervention in the believer's life, transforming his heart, bringing him from spiritual death to spiritual life, the believer will in no means turn away from his God and Savior. Doesn't mean there might be times of spiritual complacency. Doesn't, might, doesn't mean that there might be times of, of some persistent sin. But ultimately and finally, the believer will not turn away from me, the new covenant emphasizes. Let's take a look at the New Testament evidence. The New Testament evidence, John 6, 37. We have already looked at this passage. It says, all that the father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, 40, 44. And I will raise him up on the last day. A.W. Pink rightly observes in this section of John chapter six, he says, eternal predestination guarantees eternal preservation, end quote. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. What a glorious reality this chapter is. I hope that as I encouraged you at the end of last time that you at least opened up your Bible to John chapter 10, just gave it a look at it. But look at verse 27 of John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The verb perish there in verse 28 means to experience destruction or ruin, and it's often used in the context of eternal destruction or eternal ruin, damnation. A.W. Pink again says, it is impossible for a sheep to become a goat and for a man who has been born to be unborn. 
And notice from this affirmation in John chapter 10 that the sheep of God's fold have both God the Son and God the Father possessing them in their hands. (laughs) Believer, there is no more secure place for you to be than to be encapsulated, to be bound up within the hands of the omnipotent triune God. Pink writes, we are secured between the clasped hands of omnipotence. I love what Lorraine Bettner says. He picturesquely describes this truth writing this. He says, God is mightier than the whole world and neither men nor devil can rob him of one of his precious jewels. It would be as easy to pluck a star out of the heavens as to pluck a saint out of the Father's hand. Wow. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is not like the builder described in Luke chapter 14, who begins a project, who begins a work, but runs out of the resources to finish and complete that work. God is ample in and of himself to complete the work that he has begun. Consider Romans chapter eight, 28 through 39. I would encourage you over this next week to read this passage every single day. It won't take you long, but allow these words to be etched upon your heart with indelible marks. I mean, this is the Mount Everest of the eternal security of the believer. You see, the text says in Romans chapter eight that those who are predestined, those whom the Father foreknows are called. They're also justified. And notice at the end, they're glorified. Verse 34 says that the Son of God intercedes for believers before the right hand of God. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall nakedness or peril or famine or tribulation, shall things present or things to come, shall principalities or powers, nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To sever this golden chain of redemption would be to cut a thread of pearls that are strung together and to allow them to be scattered abroad with no hopes of putting back together. As one Puritan said, This golden chain shall hold, not a link of it shall be broken. On whomsoever the first link election hath taken hold, it will infallibly bring him up to the last. Glory, glory. First Peter 1, four through five says that believers have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. And notice how Peter in verse five describes believers in this inheritance. He says, who... The believers are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the evidence of the scriptures clearly affirm the reality of the perseverance of the saints. Let's look at two common objections to the perseverance of the saints. The first one is that the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints leads to antinomianism. What that means is that as a result of the fact that I believe that I'm gonna be saved forever, I can just live however I want. The farthest can be the case from what the scriptures teach. Consider the words of the apostle Paul in Romans chapter six. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? 
by no means. Meganoito, the strongest negation in the Greek language, by no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? You see, the Bible does teach that the Christian, the one who is elected by God and effectually called into fellowship with God, will ultimately and eternally be saved. But just as God has ordained the end, so he has ordained the means to that end. And the believer is instructed, is exhorted, is encouraged within the pages of scripture to avail themselves of these divinely ordained means, the means of grace, Bible study, prayer, the fellowship of the brethren, and even the fatherly discipline of our loving father. John Dagg, a 19th century Baptist theologian said, they who understand the doctrine of perseverance to imply that God's people will obtain the crown without the struggle against sin, totally mistake the matter. It is a wretched and fatal perversion of the doctrine if men conclude that be, having been once converted, they will be saved whatever the course of their life. A second objection that we must consider is that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is contradicted by the doctrine of apostasy. This objection asserts that the scriptures record several cases of authentic and genuine apostasy. That is a renouncing of what was once believed and affirmed, a falling away from the faith, if you will. These objectors will cite scriptural texts such as 2 Peter 2, verse 1, verses 20 through 22. They'll point to the example of Demas who deserted the apostle Paul out of a love for the world. You see, the Bible clearly does teach that there are certain individuals who are professors of faith, who will profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who might even give that outward appearance that they are in the faith, and yet who are not. Consider the Sermon of the, on the Mount, Matthew 7. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not perform many miracles in your name, cast out demons and do many mighty works? The Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Consider the example that we shared earlier, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were never of us. Consider the soils in Matthew chapter 13, the seed that falls upon the rocky ground that immediately gives rise to fruit. But when the scorching sun comes, it immediately withers up because it doesn't have any substantial root system. You can probably think of friends and family who used to profess faith in Christ who you genuinely thought to be Christians who now contradict that claim and profession by living lives that are antithetical to the gospel. While we can't study these texts in great detail, let me summarize the issue by quoting Lewis Burkhoff. He says that these instances, the text that the objectors will present forward, Demas, 2 Peter 2, etc., these instances do not prove the contention that real believers who are in possession of true saving faith can fall from grace, unless it first be shown that the persons indicated in these passages actually had genuine faith in Christ and not just a mere temporal faith, which is not rooted in regeneration. Let's consider the historical affirmations of the perseverance of the saints. I just wanna consider one, Augustus Toplady, the gentleman who wrote Rock of Ages, also wrote a hymn called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. I'm gonna read the second and the third stanzas that affirm the glorious reality of the perseverance of the saints. Toplady writes, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, 
can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. The third stanza goes on to say, my name from the palm of his hand, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. And listen to this, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. More happy, but not more secure. In other words, your salvation believer is just as sure and just as certain as those who are already glorified in heaven because God cannot repent, because God cannot change his mind. He's not like a man. His promises are yea and amen. Let us praise God for his work of preserving grace in our lives without which every single one of us would fall away. Every single one of us would not be here this morning apart from God's preserving grace in your life. So we've studied the five pillars of the doctrines of grace and we have taken a 30,000 foot flyover. We haven't even skimmed the surface. We've affirmed that the doctrines of grace are biblically taught and historically affirmed truths that serve the purpose of exalting the sovereign glory of our great God and humbling sinners whose only boast is in the Lord. We've discussed the doctrine of total depravity which says that mankind is entirely corrupted in all of his faculties and unable to perform any spiritual good. We've talked about unconditional election, which teaches that God, according to his sovereign will, chose those who would be the beneficiaries of redemption before the foundation of the world. We've discussed limited atonement, that Jesus Christ offered his life as a substitutionary atonement for the elect and the elect alone. We've discussed irresistible grace where God in his appointed timing effectually calls and regenerates the elect, guaranteeing their conversion, their response and faith and repentance. And lastly, we studied the perseverance of the saints, the elect, those who are graciously and effectually called by God will ultimately and finally be eternally saved. My prayer for all of us is that those objectives I set before us will be manifest in our life, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would be compelled, that we would be stimulated to give greater magnification, greater extolment, greater exaltation to the God who saves sinners. And as a result of this study, that we would be humbled by salvation accomplished by God from beginning to end. Let me close by, real quick. There's some resources up on the, the slide for you. Now, if you can't jot them down now, I'll be glad to give you these and many more. Those are some brief introductions. What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul? Uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by, um, by John Murray, and then the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner. But let me close in the words of the great 20th century, James Montgomery Boyce. He says, the doctrines of grace stand or fall together, and together they point to the one central truth, that salvation is all of grace because it is all of God. And because it is all of God, it is all for his glory. And to this affirmation, we echo and we respond and we conclude that salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these grand truths. I pray that you would 
impress these truths upon our heart that we would leave here today, not just more knowledgeable, but truly amazed at your grace, that the words of John Newton would be manifest in our life, that we would be amazed and marvel at your matchless, magnificent grace. Lord, do the work of grace in our hearts now for your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.